I'm just going to stand here until you guys are ready. You love loving on each other, and I love watching you love on each other, so we'll just... i got other things I can do. I can pray. It's uh, part of the body of Christ. You know, I often wonder how the first century church and how we compare. You know, I, I, I think that that church of the first century, you know, we can't replicate it in every way, shape, or form. It wouldn't be practical. probably wouldn't even be wise. But I think because there was so little going on besides the basic things of life and being sustained, I think the church was far more important in the first century than it's become in our modern day and time. I think when people thought of church then, they really did think of brothers and sisters and people that they were deeply involved with. And I'm thankful that this church is the way it is and that we do minister one to another. And with that, for those of you that know Carmen Lusion, um, her father passed away last night uh, in his sleep um, peacefully. And so uh, we're going to pray for Carmen, just the family, before we get into the Word tonight. And just always a difficult time. You know, there's no, pastors don't have a book of answers that they can go to when these things happen. And so we know the one who has the answers, the one who's the God of all comfort. And so we're going to take that family before the Lord as we also pray for our time in the Word tonight. So would you pray with me? Father God, we ask right now for Carmen. Lord, we pray that you would just reach into her heart. Lord, what a terrible, difficult thing it is to wake and find your own father gone. But Lord, we believe that he's with you. And we would ask right now that you would just be that great source of strength, Lord, that one to whom she can turn to right now to hide and trust, and the one who cares for her more than any human being has ever cared for her on this earth. And you know her heart and where she's at right now, and we would just ask that you would just be that sustainer, Lord, that one that cradles her in those moments when she's tempted to lose hope. Would you be her hope? In that time when her mind might wander away from your goodness, would you be the God of goodness to her? Would you touch her, provide all that she has need for? Lord, according to your great riches and glory that you, Christ Jesus, came to give us when you came to this earth, we pray that you would bless them. And Lord, as we open up your word, as we gather tonight, Lord, just to simply spend time with you, Jesus, we ask that you'd speak to us. Moved by your spirit in this place. Lord, such a beautiful passage before us. Such a simple treatment of the gospel. We pray that we would never make it more complicated. Lord, that when we see people and they want to know what it means to be a Christian. Lord, that we get that from your word. Lord, not from a church, not from a denomination, not from a book, but from your word. And so bless us as we study, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight we'll pick up in chapter 16 here in the book of Acts as we continue in Paul's mission part 4. There will be a part 5. We should be probably finishing this up next week. But we have been on his missionary journeys. We're in the second, about to begin the third of those missionary journeys. And we find Paul 
here as he begins to minister to those of the Greek culture, and as he is uh, there about to be imprisoned in Philippi, we find uh, what I like to call Salvation 101. It's a very familiar passage to many. Uh, it is the one that I almost always turn to when I end up in heated doctrinal arguments with uh, people that are of a particular denominational bent. Uh, it is the passage that I use to simplify people's understandings of, of what it really means to be saved, because I think the church has made salvation far more complex than it really is. I think the church has put uh, criteria on salvation that simply are not there from God. And I think the church very often confuses salvation with sanctification and maturation. And those are things that are subsequent or take place after you have become saved, after you become a child of God. And I think sometimes in the intent is to inspect fruit, and what we really do is we turn to a works-based doctrine. I think what often happens is in our judgmentalism of people, we miss the simple fact that Jesus himself declared to Nicodemus that he needed to be born again. And he asked him to believe, and he said, it is enough that you believe. And now Paul emphasizing here in this incredible picture that we have here in Acts chapter 16, the method by which every person who will ever be saved will be saved. And I pray that it ministers to you. I pray that it will wash away perhaps years of doctrinal problems for you. Uh, the two basic trains of thought that are on this earth in Christendom come from two general bents. Uh, the Arminian view and the Calvinist view are the two extreme views. One believes that salvation is extremely difficult, and that extreme difficulty is so difficult that you can, in fact, lose your salvation and do very frequently and need to get saved again and again and again and again. Pastor Chuck tells a story when he was a young guy growing up in the Foursquare denomination that he basically got saved every summer. He realized he was a wretched sinner, and every time he went to camp because of his doctrinal bent, he believed he needed to get saved again. Because he had been convinced that his sins had separated him from God even after he'd been saved. The flip side of that is the Calvinist view. And they part of their doctrine is the doctrine of divine election. That election basically states that God elected you before the foundation of the world, which is true. But that election is so complete that you were actually saved before you were saved. And because you're saved, you're always saved. And it doesn't matter what you do. And so you have two doctrinal bents that really don't come from Scripture. They're extreme views that are backed up by a handful of passages. Uh, they are not in totality able to either one of them back up their viewpoint. Uh, hence the reason that I tell you that as someone who attends the Calvary Chapel, the easiest way to describe your doctrinal bent with regard to soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation, is that you are a Calvinist. You're right down the middle. That salvation comes by grace and through faith. That is a gift of God. It is not of works, lest any should boast. 
And so none of us can add anything to salvation, nor can we subtract anything from salvation insofar as what Scripture says it is. And so here in Acts chapter 16, as we pick up in the 16th verse, and we find this interesting story as Paul is now with Luke. You'll notice here the use of the word us. And now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with the spirit of divination met us. And I want to remind you that this was far more common then than it is now, but it is not uncommon, nor is it absent from our world today. There are still people who practice the occult. It is real. It is absolutely factual. Uh, we see not as much of it here in this country as they do in developing countries where the enemy is much easier, uh, much more easily moved to these types of acts because they're very persuaded by those things. Uh, it flows quite well with animist cultures or cultures where um, they believe that there are spirits anyway. And so uh, this slave girl was actually what we would call probably a practicing uh, witch of some kind, a spirit of divination. In other words, she could call upon the demonic realm and cause things to happen. It still does function and does happen in our world. Make no mistake about it. Uh, when you're watching some gory movie you probably shouldn't be watching and you're, you're seeing some uh, movie stunt where something is being thrown across the room, that really can happen. Now, the good news is, as a child of God, you have the Holy Spirit in you, and children who are saved cannot also at the same time be possessed or be overcome by demonic forces. And so this young lady, uh, not having the Lord in her, was basically a place where they could make money. She was very good, obviously, at what she did, and because that spirit of divination was uh, in her, uh, her masters now come on the scene, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. And so she delves into the demonic realm. She delves into the spirit world in an ungodly fashion. She's able to tell fortunes. She probably uh, does all kinds of things that we would find absolutely extravagant to even talk about, but quite real. And so bringing her masters much fortune by fortune-telling, so to speak, this girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, Now, I want you to notice this, because this is always the way it works. There's truth mixed with the lie, because she's going to tell a truth. She says, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. In other words, she's actually, apparently, trying to get in on this whole salvation thing. She's going to add it to her bag of tricks. And here's how this plays into our modern world. Every major cult that is functioning in the world today, and I'm not talking about the real wacky ones, I'm talking about Mormonism. I'm talking about Jehovah's Witnesses. I'm talking about, to some degree, branches of Seventh-day Adventism. I'm talking about those groups that are classically cult. They do several things. They believe in salvation by the organization. They believe that you must have the writings of another source other than the Bible. And their way is the only way. And their way is not Jesus Christ, who is Lord. 
When you're talking about cults, they all function this way to some degree. They mix a little bit of truth with a little bit of lie. You got a little bit of Bible with a little Mary Baker Eddy. You got a little bit of Bible with a little Joseph Smith. You got a little bit of Bible with a little bit of Ellen G. White. And so this young lady realizes that, and in seeing that, she begins to say, Hey, why don't we just join forces? We'll just kind of bring people there, and I'll tell them their fortune, and we'll have a really good show then. That is, in essence, the operational mode that cults take. They try and look like they are Christian, while at the same time preaching a lie. And so here she begins... She did this for many days, but Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, notice he speaks directly to the Spirit that is in this girl, not the girl itself. Very important distinction there. Paul, being discerning in the Spirit, realizes this girl is absolutely possessed by a Spirit and speaks to the Spirit, not to the girl. The girl is basically overcome, or what we would call possessed, of that demonic spirit. And I command you in the name, notice what he does, of Jesus Christ to come out of her. The only thing that defeats the demonic world is the blood of Jesus Christ. That's it. You go toe-to-toe with somebody, and I'm not encouraging you to go down to Raven's Fancy and worry about whether you're having spells or incantations cast upon you. Greater is he who's in you than he who's in this world. You stand in the blood of Christ, and you don't have anything to fear. But in this sense that was going on then, because this was a much greater thing then than it is today, this particular lady was possessed of a demon. And he says, come out in the name of Jesus. And he, that is the demon, came out that very hour. Now, did I just teach you how to do an exorcism? No. But what I did tell you is very, very real. And I have had a couple of times myself personally that this has happened. And I can tell you they are scary beyond belief, both of them at the camp. Um, both of them happened late in the evening. One of them was an older lady who had come to be a nurse at the facility, and she literally spoke in a man's voice. And I have not ever been so scared in my entire life as when she began to speak in that man's voice. Um, it was extremely frightening, and this is exactly what I said. I said, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out. That demon began to no longer speak through her. I do believe it left her. The same thing happened at the chapel. We had a young lady laying out on the deck of the chapel. She was frothing at the mouth, flopping on the ground like a fish, and screaming in multiple different voices. I do believe she was possessed. I have seen this happen. It is not a joke. It is very real. Great news is, as a child of God, you have the same power that Paul used here. It's the name of Jesus Christ. Both occasions, we laid hands on and prayed for both of those ladies. Uh, to my knowledge, the one young lady uh, was, in essence, healed that very night and uh, became saved and is still walking with the Lord. The older lady, uh, very, very, very sad story. She was actually murdered in a motel uh, down in Redlands.
and we're not quite sure how it all worked out, but I can tell you this, she was very, very, very tormented. And so this is not anything to mess with. So if ever you get in that situation to where you think you may be confronted by someone who is possessed, um, the only thing that is your defense is the name of Jesus Christ and the word of God. Use it wisely and don't fight with it. Demons are very powerful. Um, they are not fake. They are not something that's made up in the imagination of horror and fiction writers. They are real. Uh, scripture declares that a third of the host of heaven, the third of the angels, fell with Satan, and they fell to this earth. They are still here. They are eternal beings. Okay? They, they, are, they last forever, in other words. They don't have an expiration date on them. So... The good news is is that there are two-thirds of the angels in heaven uh, are there to combat them, and normally that's what's going on. So as a child of God, you have those, those angels that are watching over you and watching over me. They're there to do the bidding of the Lord, and normally we do not see them because of the work of the Spirit in the world. So especially in a nation whose God is the Lord. And so here, not the case. Notice what happened. And when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, in other words, they were in it for the money. There have been people who have tried to make this out. This girl was, you know, perhaps mentally uh, not altogether there, but the text clearly states that she was possessed of a demon. And so when that occurred, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them to the marketplace and to the authorities. In other words, they had horned in on their money-making capacity. And so they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. They teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive and observe. In other words, they call upon the very same thing which caused Jesus Christ ultimately to be turned back over to the Jews, and that was Roman law. Under Roman law, we can do these things. Matter of fact, Rome at this time was one of the most debauched places that's ever been on the face of the earth. And at that time, highly likely, uh, you had Emperor Caligula, who was one of the most vile people to ever walk the face of the earth. And so these things not only would have been legal, they would have probably been put forth in a fashion that it was doing the community some kind of good. And then the multitude rose up together against them. It was kind of like they took away their television set. You know, no doubt that people went down most every day to watch the goings-on with this demon-possessed girl and how she could tell fortunes and probably levitate things. Who knows what she could do? But highly likely it was quite a show, and these guys were making money off of it. And the magistrates tore their clothes off and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Now, that phrase, to keep them securely, meant that they had actually received the death penalty. Normally, you were only put in the lower portions of any prison, which is what that is indicating in the Greek language, that they were cast into the bowels of the prison. They were put where only the persons who were guilty of a capital crime were sent. And so, notice it goes on, having received such a charge, they put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. In other words, they were preparing to kill them. Apparently, they had been given, in essence, a death sentence. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Can you imagine? 
Now, you've just gone and broken up. You know, you, you went to Madam Chloe's thing, and she was doing, you know, seances or whatever, and you break that up, and the cops come in and arrest you, and they use a little excessive force and beat you and then shoot you, and then you're tried on the spot, sentenced to death, put in prison. What would be your first reaction? Uh, well, some of you spiritual ones would pray. The rest of us would whine out loud and be calling Larry H. Parker to get us out, more than likely. You know, we we would like to think, and I would like to think that I would pray and sing hymns, but this is a mark of maturity. This is somebody who's trusting God. This is someone who knows they did the right thing, and they're going to do what God's called them to do, no matter what man says. And so here the prisoners were listening, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, it immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were loosed. Now, I want you to notice what happened. Everyone's chains were loosed. It wasn't just Paul and Silas. It was everybody in the prison. So they have a wholesale jailbreak going on. The entire prison is opened up and everybody's escaping. Now, at the time to understand Roman law, when a Roman soldier was given a task and it involved the enforcement of Roman law, whatever prisoner they were guarding, that prisoner's punishment was the punishment the guard would receive should they fail at their duty. So Paul and Silas had a death sentence. Guess what the sentence is for the Philippian jailer? It's death as well if they get out. So you can imagine while the Philippian jailer is a little bit uh, not too keen on the whole idea of this happening, and the keeper of the prison, awakening from his sleep, seeing that the prison doors were open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. He said, I'd rather die by my own hand than end up, you know, being shipped off to Rome in the Colosseum or some such horrible thing as was common during the day. But Paul called with a loud voice, do yourself no harm, we're all here. Not only did Paul and Silas have control over their own lives, but evidently, through the power of the Holy Spirit, they had actually caused the rest of the prisoners to stay put as well. Now, that's the power of God. There's no way in the world that that was just, you know, coincidence. I mean, those guys seeing the prison doors should have been flying out of those things. We're all here. Don't, don't worry about it. And then he called for a light and ran in. Yeah, I'll bet he did and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And when he brought them out and said, Sirs, notice this, what must I do to be saved? Is that plain enough for you? He asked the most simple of all questions with regard to salvation. Now, setting this up, going all the way back to the beginning of chapter 16, really back to the part of chapter 15, you realize what's going on here. The gospel is going out. Paul and Silas, Barnabas and Mark, they're taking the gospel out. They're preaching the same message time and time again in that general region. This was widely known that these two guys are these gospel geeks that are going around and people are getting saved, okay? This isn't something that just kind of popped up on this little tiny town. Paul had planted a church here. That church is beginning to flourish. Wasn't the first time they heard of Christians. Was not the first time they heard of Paul and Silas. What must I do to be saved? And so they said, join our church, get the right hand of fellowship, read this great book by John Calvin, um, 
you gotta be a, you gotta come to church three times a week. You have to give 11.5% of all you earn because we believe in a tithe in a little bit. And you can be saved. And oh, by the way, you gotta be crucified upside down. And baptized and circumcised and you need to know Hebrew and Greek. Aramaic is nice, but we don't make that a requirement. Your Bibles don't have any of that? Mm, I wonder why. Because none of those things are essential to be saved. Church membership is not essential to be saved. Baptism is not essential to be saved. Scripture does not teach that you have to be baptized to be saved. Matter of fact, when you look at what Scripture actually says, not only does it not say that, Paul says, I thank God that I baptized no one but Crispus and Gaius, because it becomes such a problem in the church, because people were confusing everything and mixing it all in. Now, should you be baptized? Absolutely. There are a couple of things that Jesus did that we've been commanded to do. Okay, one is to take communion, the other is to be is to be baptized, but they are not essential for your salvation. You do not get more saved or you are not less saved because you are or are not baptized. Baptism is a sign of what's already happened. You are identifying with the finished work of Jesus Christ, his birth, his death and his and his resurrection. So when we talk about what is essential to salvation, here it comes. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. You can and do become a child of God by believing on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, having said that, you need to make sure it's the Lord Jesus Christ. There are three parts to that name. They are all equally important. The Lord means master. Jesus means Yahweh is salvation, or God is salvation, and Christ means the anointed one or the Messiah. You need to have the right Jesus. You can't believe in the Jesus that's the brother of Lucifer that came up with a couple of plans, and Lucifer's wasn't quite as good as Jesus's, so um, we'll, we'll go with that particular one, who's one of Elohim's many children. He is also the only begotten Son of God. And so when you're talking about believing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as a very specific person with a very specific message, but it is belief that saves. It is no other thing that saves. And this Philippian jailer is proof case in point. We find no evidence, none, that he did anything else to be saved. He says, goes on, and this is not an indictment that you can save your whole household by you becoming saved, because in the context it says, and you will be saved, in other words, believing, you will be saved, you and all your household. And what that simply says in the Greek language in which this was written is that you bring the fragrance of Christ into your home so that the natural outcome of you walking with Jesus is your family's going to walk with Jesus. That's what happens. And so he says, And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And so they went and shared the gospel message with them. I want you to notice something. The phrase, it's the word of the Lord, is also often translated the gospel. So they spoke the Lord Jesus Christ to the household. That is how they got saved. It wasn't that they just, you know, automatically got saved because, you know, Cousin Bob the Jailer got saved. 
They got saved because they heard the gospel as well. And he took them out the same hour and washed their stripes, and immediately he and all of his family were baptized. Now notice that it's subsequent to the salvation. The salvation comes first, the baptism comes second. It says they were saved in the present tense of that sentence. It says that they became saved the moment they believed, is how it actually is rendered in the Greek language. They became saved the moment they believed. And so now they go and do what they should do, which is identify with Jesus Christ, and they are baptized. And now when he had brought them into the house and he would set food before them, he rejoiced having believed in God. Notice, having believed in God, not having believed in God and not having believed in God, being baptized and going through a class, having believed in God with all of his household. And that word God there is a triune version of God. If it were in the Old Testament, it would be Elohim. It is simply stating that God in all of his facets, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, believed in him. And when it was day, the magistrate sent the officer saying, let those men go. So not only did their salvation experience cause the rest of these people to become saved, but after, after the fashion, seeing that, even the favor of the Roman government falls upon them. So that which began as simple faith by believing in Christ Jesus as Lord now works out in the work of the Spirit, and it actually begins to change their life immediately. And so the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent so that I should let you go, and therefore now depart and go in peace. Do you realize this is the only way that the men could have been saved and that no one would have had to die for them getting out of prison? Isn't that awesome? The Lord managed to accomplish this beautiful thing of seeing these men come to Christ and at the same time making sure none of the Roman guards got killed, none of the prisoners falsely escaped. God accomplished exactly what he sent that earthquake to do. God works in very mysterious, very wonderful, and very pointed ways. God knows what he's doing. He knows exactly how to handle this. Had it gone down to where they all escaped, the prison, the, the guards would have died. Had they gotten caught trying to escape, the prisoners would have died. But instead, the Holy Spirit speaking to these men says, you know what, stay there, it's going to be okay. And then God gives them favor with the Roman government on top of it. That is God at work. God doing the miraculous, something that you would never think could possibly happen. God does by just some people giving their lives to the Lord Jesus. And Paul sent to them and and, and Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and thrown us into prison. I love this. Paul's not done yet. This is dedication. They have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? In other words, he says, hey, we're going to make better use of this time here. You know, so far it's the jailer, his family, a few people have gotten saved. You beat us and threw us in here. We want to make good use of this time for the Lord. No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. So he sends for the magistrate. He's been released. And he is more concerned about whether people come to Christ than whether he's released from prison. That is dedication to the Lord Jesus. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans, because they knew they were in trouble. You see, when you live your life 
by God's law and by God's word, when you do what God says, then you have God on your side. And and so what's happened here is they were falsely accused and put in prison. That's why scripture declares that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. You can trust God to issue judgment and do all the things that he needs to do in his proper time. And now as the tables begin to turn, Paul goes from being beaten and thrown in prison to having the upper hand on the very magistrates that tossed him in there. That's how God works. And they were afraid of them that they heard they were Romans because it was unlawful. You could not do that. One of the beautiful things about the Roman Empire, there were lots of things that were actually quite good about the Roman Empire. Uh, they, what was around the world in that area of the, wor- of the world at the time was called the Pax Romana or the Roman peace. And the Roman peace allowed for every citizen of Rome to live under peace and be entitled to a fair trial. They were protected. They provided for roads. They provided for distribution of water. They sought to the general safety of the population. Even if you were not a Roman citizen but lived under Roman law, you had some protection. And so they took it very seriously that a Roman citizen, who was Paul was a Roman citizen, would be falsely accused and thrown in prison. This is huge. You can trust God with your difficulties. You, you can leave those things in his hands. And so he begins, and then they came, and notice what happens, and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart the city. In other words, what they're saying is, man, we were wrong, sorry. Don't turn us in. So he goes from looking like he's going to die to being, in essence, on the top of the heap. And so they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. And so as you begin to mess with the world, you can count on the world coming against you. But you can also count on the Lord coming to your rescue. And greater is he who's in you than he who's in this world. And so as you fight these fights, you go through these battles, and we do that. We go through all kinds of things in life. You know, it rains on the just and the unjust, folks. Uh, Bad days come to good people, and good days come to bad people. God has never in his word, not anywhere, promised us that we would have smooth sailing all the way through life, and no evil thing would ever befall us. If you have enough faith, you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. It is not in there. The exact opposite is in there. But you will have tribulation. But I have overcome the world. Don't worry, he says. That you will be persecuted because he first was hated himself. That you'll have trouble because he was troubled. That there are going to be difficulties in life. Those things the word does plainly declare. But it always declares that he is the way and the truth and the life, and he gets us through those storms and ultimately will use those storms to get us home to heaven. We're being prepared, in essence, for glory. And so sometimes we go through things we don't want to go through. And sometimes we go through painful things that don't seem even fair. But God's bigger than earthly fairness. He's got a heavenly perspective on your life and upon my life. When you're in pain, you're in that midnight hour, just like Paul and Silas were, uh, we can give those things to the Lord. You know, I, I have, and I'll just tell you, I have, well, I have a very interesting dream life. It is just, I rarely dream good things. I have apocalyptic dreams very frequently. And, you know, sometimes I wake up and they are so unbelievably real. 
you know, I'm like, I'm sweating bullets. Like, just like, oh, no, my whole family's dead. No, you know, and I wake up and, and I just pray. Yes, Lord, man, that was horrible. I don't want to go back to sleep because I've done that. Anybody else done that? You go back to sleep and you go right back to the same dream. You're like, oh, that's why I got up in the first place. Then you find out you didn't even get up or something. You know, you, you just thought you got up. You actually got up in your dream, but you didn't even really get up. You know, that's a really, really, really good time to take those things to Jesus. I have actually been praying in my dream for things to end and actually had the Lord come and rescue me. So it's, I can tell you that when we do that, when we give those things to the Lord, we have a, we have a great result. But when I don't, anybody else get up and you kind of worry about, oh, I wonder if it's real. Yeah. I've had those things. I think anybody that's honest will say, yeah, I've had one of those kind of dreams. We need in the midnight hour to make sure we're giving our things to the Lord. And sometimes if I can't go right back to sleep, I'll get up and I'll just go downstairs and pray. Until I have enough peace to go back to sleep. And sometimes that's because the dog's licking my face. So. <laughs> but this guy who was the jailer, isn't it interesting? When you really look at this passage, the guy that was the real prisoner was the jailer, wasn't it? Because he was a prisoner of sin and death. If Paul had been killed, if they had just taken him out and stoned him to death or whatever, Paul would have won. Paul would have gone home to heaven. He wasn't the real prisoner. The prisoner was the jailer. And God found a way to set everybody free. That's the way the Lord works in these situations. If we just give him an opportunity and glorify his name and give people an opportunity to know the truth. A couple of other places, you know, we already looked at the life of Cornelius. We're going to come to Crispus and Gaius and these guys. You know, it, the gospel is simple. It, it is simple. And we need to not make it complex. The process that happens after you get saved is lifelong. It takes forever, as long as you're here on this earth. One day glory. But the whole time that you're here on earth, you're in a constant state of change. Giving your life to God as a living sacrifice, as Romans 12, 1 says. Not being conformed into the world, but rather being transformed by the renewing of your mind. That takes forever. Your mind's been filled with things, and that transforming and renewing is an ongoing process called maturation. But salvation comes by believing on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then your life begins to turn around. And that 180 has begun at that point, and it's really interesting because some people say, well, you know, it's a 180, but what happens if you go a little too far because you'll start coming back around the other way? And I'm going, you know, it's like this. It, you were on a long road coming into a hairpin turn. You get to the hairpin turn, you make the 180, and it's a long road the other way. That's maturation. That's sanctification. This way was your carnal life. You make the 180, which is the salvation, and now you're going that way towards being mature and being sanctified, becoming a, a better saint, in other words. Both journeys take time. The good news is the second one ends in heaven. That's all it is. You're just making the turn. If you confess Jesus Christ as Lord, you will be saved. That's what he said. And so here we find that beautiful picture. And so we leave now chapter 16 and on to chapter 17. We'll see what we can do with this one tonight. And we see how different types of people begin to respond to the word of God. It's interesting that the gospel message... Very simple message. You know, people ask, well, you know, what do you tell somebody when they want to get saved? You tell them about Jesus. 
You tell them about Jesus from your perspective, from your life experience, from the things that you do know, from the handful of scriptures that you know. You tell them about Jesus. But people respond very differently. I, I can tell you, you know, I've, I've taught in front of very large groups of people. And, and, you know, you can deliver the same message to a huge group, and you might have a handful of people that respond to that message. You can deliver that message to a small group, and maybe the whole group's going to get saved. It depends on the person. We have to respond to the gospel message. You don't, there are no magic words. I actually had a young youth pastor one time. Because our camps are, are always centered around the Bible, always centered around Christ, there, there's always a time that someone can you know, make a profession of faith. That's, that's a normal happening at the camp. I had a youth pastor who had never delivered an evangelistic message in his entire life. And he came to me, oh, what do I tell him? Because I'm supposed to be the evangelist. And I said, no, that isn't how it works. I said, if you haven't been given that gift and you're not going to be an evangelist, you might deliver an evangelistic message, so tell them about Jesus. This guy was totally scared. He's like 20 years old. He's never done this before. There's 400 high schoolers. He's delivering a message, and like 200 people get saved. It was the most lame message I have ever heard in my entire life. I, it was like there was no point to it at all. It's, I'm not even sure he actually gave the gospel message. But because he so much wanted to see people come to Christ, and he, I, I believe he ended with John 14, 6, he's the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father about my kids. Like, I got you saved. It's not about you. It's about people hearing the gospel and responding to it. And some people hear it and respond. And some people hear they, they People go to Harvest Crusades and Billy Graham all the time. They sit there, you know, they got their scowl on their faces. Stupidest message I ever heard. Nothing happens. And then you've got the physicists who are sitting there. It's just like, i got to go get saved right now. Sometimes the intelligent people are the hardest to reach, and sometimes they're the easiest, and sometimes it's the people who don't have a lot going on for them that get saved. It's, it's them responding. Verse 1 here in Acts 17, we'll get through part of this tonight. Now, when they had passed through Amphilus and on to Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, and of course we're studying this particular church on Sunday mornings. So this is the church in Thessalonica to whom Paul will write the letters that we're now studying on Sunday morning. And there was a synagogue there of the Jews, and then Paul, as was his custom, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So when I shared with you that Paul was only there for three weeks, this is where it comes from. Paul spent three weeks preaching and teaching in the synagogue about Jesus Christ. So he's speaking to Jews who become saved by that message and then go out into this Grecian culture. And he goes on to say, for three Sabbaths, he noticed what he did, reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Please remember that the Old Testament has exactly the same gospel message in it as the New. It's buried in a much deeper fashion. It is not so open as to say, you know, here it is. But salvation by grace and through faith is taught in the Old Testament as well. Because when you look at the Messiah, the one that the Jews were looking for, it is very clear from the book of Isaiah, the book of Zechariah, the book of Daniel, 
uh, as you look at what the Old Testament says in Psalm 22, Psalm 16, Psalm 19, Psalm 1, you find out exactly who this Jesus, who would be Messiah, will be. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his stripes, the Old Testament says, we are healed. Okay, so he could reason with Jewish people from the scriptures about the New Testament Messiah. That would have not been difficult for the Apostle Paul. And so he does that. He begins to share with them, explaining, notice what he does, demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, you know where he got that? Psalm 16. Thou shalt not leave my Holy One in Sheol. Psalm 22, all of my bones were out of joint, but not one of them would be broken. See, he can reason with them from the Old Testament scriptures what would happen to Jesus and then say, you know what? I was there. I was there at the time he was crucified. I know these things happen. So the Old Testament Messiah, the one that you're looking for, is the one whom I met at Calvary's cross. And so he shares with them, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. He is the anointed one. That simply means the anointed one. It would also mean the Hebrew Messiah. He says this Jesus is the Messiah. And some of them were persuaded in a great multitude of devout Greeks. And not a few leading women joined Paul and Silas. And so here he preaches this message. Not everyone's convinced, but quite a few are. And he reasons from the Old Testament Jewish perspective that this Jesus who is the Christ is the embodiment and the fulfillment of what the Jews were looking for in the Messiah. And so he says that to them. But the Jews who were not persuaded, notice this, Becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, gathering a mob, and set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. Very often, problems come from within the church. These guys were in the synagogue. They heard the same message. Part of them got saved, part of them got mad. Happens all the time. We had a few on Sunday, folks that got irritated. Didn't want to hear the truth. Not my job to discern for them what is applicable to them. My job is to to deliver the Word of God, and that's it. And that offends people. They don't like the message. People do not like the fact that there's a real hell, and people do not like the fact that there's only one way to escape it, and His name is Jesus Christ. They don't like it. They don't want to hear it. It's too narrow. They call it bigoted. You can call it what you want. I didn't make up the message. I just preached the message. I proclaim that truth. I don't have any choice. If I wavered on it now, I would have to erase two decades of ministry and say, well, I just didn't, you know, I was wrong. I didn't mean it. No, there's only one way of salvation. And so people are going to get upset, and they attack. They get mean, they get nasty, they write horrible emails, they say all manner of evil things, they will talk about you, they'll talk about me, they'll talk about the church, they're going to talk about us, they're going to make all kinds of stories up, and they're going to try and stir up the crowd. Why? You know why? Because there is a level of conviction. You know, it's like the old saying, you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, and one that barks got hit. And very often when that happens, 
when the gospel goes out and people start yelping, oh, that can't be true, it's because they're under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and they won't respond. And so the Holy Spirit is making their life miserable and they begin to rebel against that truth. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too? He says, You know what? We really liked our carnal little city. We were very happy without this Jesus stuff. We don't even know that we want to see people come to Christ. Jason harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. Now, is that totally true? No, but it is partially true because they were saying they were going to give their allegiance to God no matter what, and that would not include Caesar. Very thing, same thing that Jesus said, by the way. He said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar, and unto God the things that are God. And, of course, your soul belongs to God. Uh, your money and everything else. Paul wasn't preaching anything against the, the Roman way of life or the Roman government. He had not said a thing against them. That was fabricated. There's another king. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city, and they heard these things so that when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. In other words, they took money from them. So we, uh, we're, we're going to take some money just so that you come back and answer for these things. And so here as they were following the along, in essence, as Paul's making this loop around through uh, this area of the world, they were following the, the Ignatian Way. It's about 100 miles from Philippi to Thessalonica. So here they're traveling around through this area of the world. And as they do that, they begin to, to look for places that they can stop and minister. And there were, maybe there was no synagogues along the way. And so now, as was Paul's custom, he comes to uh, Thessalonica, which is modern-day Salonica. And, and here they're, it's a strategic city. It's on the travel routes or the trade routes as they're moving goods back and forth. It was a free city, which meant it had elected citizens that were in essence and power at the time, and they, they could mint their own coins. They didn't have a Roman garrison. They were kind of like uh, a free area of trade inside the Roman Empire, but they were actually still protected by the Romans. It was the best of both worlds. They had Roman protection, but they could kind of do their own thing. And now Paul brings in... The good news brings the gospel. And people don't like it when you mess with their stuff. When you tell them, you know what, yeah, you, man, that, that party lifestyle you have, that, that's got to go. It's going to kill you. You know, I, I realize you enjoy smoking dope, but ultimately it's going to kill you. And if you continue in that, Scripture says that, that, you know, if you keep your sin, then you trade eternity for it. So do you want to trade eternity for that? You tell someone, you know, Scripture says you need to be married. You can't just live together indefinitely and have children. And that's all designed by God to be inside a marriage. You can't do that. And when you mess with people's lives that way, in a way that's glorifying the Lord, by the way, because you're telling them the truth that saves, they get upset. They get mad. I can tell you, I've had a lot of people storm out. Oh, I can't believe you'd say that to me. I forget, about five years ago, I had a couple. And because of the camp, I get asked to do a lot of weddings. I, I mean, a lot of weddings. Like, we get probably a couple of requests a week to have a wedding at the camp. 
you know, like we're a wedding factory or something. Actually, we could make a lot of money now that I think about it, but... No, you, but that's not what we're there for. We're there to minister to kids, but I get asked all the time. And I actually had a couple. They refused to take no on the phone. Well, we want to come in and talk to you. I said, well, great. I can share the gospel with them. And they came and said, you know, we've been in a committed relationship for four. They, drug, they had three kids already. Now, I'm not pointing fingers. I'm just saying they already had three children. And so they come in and I said, well, you know, if it would if it would cause you to come to see Jesus, you know, maybe we could find a date. And she says, oh, no, we don't want any of that. We just want to use the facility. And I said, the facility's not for sale. And she literally got out her checkbook and said, what would it take to rent it? And I said, you don't have enough money. And she got up and stomped out of my office. Oh, I can't believe how Christian is this? I said, it's really Christian. <laughs> the whole thing's about Christ. You know, you, you, you sit there and, and it makes people mad. You tell them the truth. They don't want to hear it. You mean I can't, you can't be bought? No. It's not for sale. What I have, I give you, Scripture declares. What I have is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. Not in the wedding business. It was the same way here. As they were here for these three Sabbaths and they begin to share all the truths that are contained in God's Word, the enemies of the cross rise up. And remember, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. That doesn't mean that the lost want to be found. Don't forget that. A lot of times the lost, matter of fact, Scripture declares that men preferred the darkness, that they actually liked to walk in darkness. Uh, and probably many of you can look back at your days before you came to Christ and you realize that that's very true. You were pretty blissfully ignorant, wandering around in your sin, and you're just like, you know, don't mess with my sin. Don't, don't mess with the junk in my life. You know, you tell me the truth, and then I'm responsible for it, in essence. So as Paul's publicly preaching the truth in a rather debauched Greek society, you can imagine what it did to stir up the population because people were getting saved. They're all going, hey, you can't do that anymore. You know what, Zeus, he's a phony. You know, Apollo, you're worshiping the gods of Mount Olympus. That's on earth. He's going to go on here. He's going to pick up and, and move and... Uh, move on to some other cities, but he's going to take up next week back in Thessalonica as, as he'll move from there to Berea. But uh, the, when you upset the peace and you upset the monetary system and you tell people the gospel, you're going to make them upset. You, you have to be prepared for that. But you know the crazy thing is? you are probably giving them the opportunity for them to be saved at the same time you're giving them the opportunity to call you all manner of evil things. And so better that you give them that opportunity than to hold your peace and make friends with them and then walk away thinking they're okay with God. And one of the things that scares me the most is that if I ever say anything to someone that causes them to feel like they don't need Jesus, then I might be the one person that kept them from hearing that gospel message. I don't ever want that to be happen or to be happening. I don't want to be guilty of the blood of that person eternally. I don't want to stand before a holy God saying, Why wouldn't you just say my name? 
I don't want to stand before God saying, you know, you, you had an opportunity to tell them about me, and instead you made friends with their petty sins. It's not a good place to be. You want to give them the opportunity to know Jesus. Even if it costs you friendship. Even if it costs you money. There isn't anything on this earth that's worth trading for a man's soul. That's why Jesus said, what would a man give in return? For his own soul. The answer is you shouldn't. There, there isn't anything that's, that's worth your soul. Nothing on this earth. Paul, Silas will continue their little journey. We'll pick up next week in verse 10. As we continue in the journeys with Paul. Let's pray. Father God, we just pray that Lord like Paul and Silas and Luke traveling with them. Lord, as will Find Timothy coming back to this city, Lord, as we recognize how marvelously your plan of salvation unfolded in these first century churches. We pray that we'd have that same heart. God, able to speak the truth in love. Lord, able to take the heat when it comes. Able to stand fast in that day of adversity. We thank you, God, that salvation is simple. Lord, that it really is believing on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, Lord Jesus, that's the fullness of who you are. You are the only begotten Son of God the Father. And Father God, you only gave one Son. It was your child who was born into this world and your Son that was given, just as Isaiah declared. And so we pray that as we share you, Jesus, with the world around us, that we wouldn't make it confusing. Lord, that we wouldn't add anything to it. We remember that grace that saves is through that faith that's a gift. And so we bless you. We thank you for the time tonight, Lord. Pray that we can learn from this amazing account of this time spent in ancient Greece and Rome that applies so much to us today. Lord, we are going to make the world upset. We're going to cause people to be very uncomfortable. If we live our lives right for you, Lord, the world is going to have problems with what we do and say. And so, Lord, may we count that as a badge of honor. Lord, an opportunity to stand for you. We bless you. We thank you. We praise you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. All right. We're going to finish up 17. Move on to 18 next week. Should be able to finish up, I think. So 18 is relatively short. We'll see what happens.